Good morning, friends. It's great to have you here today. It is a joy to be together with you, as we just sang, um, enjoying fellowship and unity and all the things that uh, are part of being in the family of God. It's, it is truly a blessing. And I look forward to every week being with you so that we can open the word together and, and to be encouraged by it. I've had uh, a few life-changing moments in my life, and I want to share three of them with you. Uh, the first was, uh, well, not the first, A, I should say. I've had a few before this, but a life-changing moment um, that most new parents can relate to uh, is the birth of our firstborn, David. I remember with vivid detail how that went. I remember that when he breathed his first breath, uh, his arms were crossed across his chest. I remember being handed the scissors by our doctor saying, uh, you're responsible for this, so you need to cut the umbilical cord. And so I did that. And uh, I remember the joy and relief on Sherry's face um, and the comfort she received from being able to hold her firstborn and the joy and relief I had from being able to take another breath after she released her grip on my throat. So uh, this was a life-changing moment for me, uh, being able to, to witness the birth of our firstborn. The second one I want to share with you, a life-changing moment for me, was a conversation. A conversation I had with a man named R.W. Mackey uh, at a youth um, conference that I took some youth to from Westside Baptist Church back in the mid-90s. R.W. Mackey uh, was a professor at the Master's College and he was the this conference speaker. And he and I kind of hit it off and I ended up having a few conversations with him and I was at one point bemoaning to him uh, the lack of mentors that I had in my life uh, to help me grow in my faith. And he, I remember this, this was the life-changing moment to me, he said, well, John, can you read? And yeah, I can read. Um, he goes, well, all the men that you would want to mentor you have all written books, read them. <laughs> and so I started reading them. I started reading the Puritans voraciously and I, I have changed. It was a life-changing moment, that conversation. Uh, my third life-changing moment um, came when I read John Piper's book when it first came out, Desiring God. That book gave me a perspective on the Christian life, a perspective on my relationship with God that changed the course of my life and brought in all sorts of blessings um, because of that new found perspective. And so these are the three life-changing moments that I wanted to share with you. I've had others, but these, were, these came to my mind as I was preparing uh, this morning sermon. We all have life-changing moments, don't we? We all have things that we go through that were different because we've gone through them. Life-changing moments. We can look back and say, that changed me. And things that, that change us are common to us. Things like marriage, the birth of a firstborn, a conversation, the reading of a book. Things like this, maybe a missions trip or what have you. We, these kind of things we have in common and God uses them at some point, some for others, and they change us. They change our worldview. They change our perspective. As we begin our adventure in Colossians, 
My prayer for Sun Valley Church is that this sermon series would be one of those life-changing moments or series of moments. I really have been praying that the content of this little book, the, the inspired pen of the Apostle Paul, would actually change you, would actually have such an influence, such an impact on you that you can look back and say, I've never been the same since that, that time. We're going to begin uh, by reading Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8 this morning. So if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open it to the first chapter and follow along as I read these first eight verses. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So these verses reveal that the Apostle Paul was overwhelmed with joyful thanksgiving because he observed the life-changing effect of the gospel in the lives of the Colossian believers. These Colossian believers lived in a small town called Colossae, and it was small, and it was about 100 miles from Ephesus, a much larger town. Uh, we could even say that the words that I've just read to you, the, the things that Paul described in verses 1 through 8, was more than just a, a life-changing moment. It was an eternity-changing moment for the Colossians. It, hearing the gospel, responding to the gospel, actually dramatically changed their entire eternity. And so that is what Paul is describing here. They came to believe the gospel and it changed everything. Not just their daily lives, but their eternal future. And so today I want to place Paul's description of the Colossians Christian gospel changed life next to our life for sake of comparison and see how they match up. So that's what I'm going to do today. Not just match up as you as individuals, but how do we as a church match up to the Colossian church of the first century? And so what would the Apostle Paul say about the evidence in your life about gospel change? Would he say what he said about the Colossians here if he were describing your life and what he's witnessed about the change that has taken place because of the gospel? On top of that, what would the Apostle Paul say in a letter if he was describing Sun Valley Church? Would he have similar things to say about us? Would he be overflowing with thanksgiving like he was for the Colossian church? My, my point this morning, and what I want you to leave with this morning, is this. If you have believed the gospel, there will be measurable changes in your life. If you believe the gospel, there will be measurable changes in your life. 
This is exactly what Paul said in verse 6. Look again at verse 6 with me. This gospel, the truth of the gospel, he says at the end of verse 5, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. If you hear and embrace the gospel, what's going to happen? Every time. Change. Every single time. And so that is, that is the premise here of my sermon to you today. If you have heard and embraced the gospel, there will be evidence of it in your life. So, I want you to hold up your life next to what the Apostle Paul describes of the Colossians gospel change and see if there are similarities. Okay? Let's look at the first of four points. Number one, a gospel changed life results in encouragement. A gospel changed life results in encouragement. Do you see this in the first four verses? Paul was obviously overflowing with thanksgiving. He was encouraged to the fill by the life of the Colossians because of their change. He begins his letter in typical fashion. You can see that describing himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And you know what the word apostle means, it means messenger. He was saying, I am a messenger of Jesus Christ. He, Jesus, as you remember, met the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. Remember when he was going up there to persecute Christians? Jesus met him and confronted him and said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus, the, the savior of the church. And so in that moment, Paul was converted. He came to Christ and he became, because of the announcement of Jesus Christ in his life, a messenger or an apostle of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. But also in this introduction, I want to point out to you that Paul meant that he was not only a messenger of Jesus Christ, but he belonged to Jesus Christ. He says, I'm a messenger of Jesus Christ, I'm an apostle belonging to Jesus Christ. He was the property, in other words, of Jesus Christ. Once you come to faith, you are now the property of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Jesus Christ isn't just an addendum that you add to your life. Jesus Christ isn't just a good idea to think about. No, Jesus Christ, when you come to faith in him, purchases you, owns you. You are no longer your own. This is what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Quoting Paul, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Have you come to faith? Then you belong to Jesus. This is what Paul was saying. I am a messenger belonging to Jesus Christ. Paul then, as you can see in verse 2, immediately begins to identify his audience by calling them saints and faithful brothers. Do you see that there? To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. I want to point out the word saints. The word saints in the original language is hagios, and hagios is the same word for holy. So whenever you read holy or saints in the New Testament, you're talking about the same original word, hagios. Here he's saying, to those who are holy and who are faithful in Christ. That's the audience. How can he say that the Colossians are holy people? How can he say that they're saints? If someone were to ask you, are you a saint, what would you say? If you're a Christian, you say, yes, I am a saint. And they may, you might get into a debate if they don't understand what you're saying, but you in fact are a saint in biblical terms if you've come to know Jesus Christ. Why? Is it because you're perfect? Because you're perfectly holy? No, 
Not in the least. You are a saint. You are holy because you have been put on. Christ has put on his holiness on you. It's not your holiness we're talking about. It's Christ's holiness. Have you heard these terms, the righteousness of Christ, the robe of Christ's righteousness? When you come to faith, guess what? You are given his robe of righteousness. And when the Father, the judge of all the earth, looks at you, he says, that individual is holy because of Christ's righteousness. And so, when you're receiving a letter from the Apostle Paul, he can actually say, holy one, or faithful one, because you've put on Christ and now are really a reflection of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's a really wonderful reality, a wonderful blessing. So whenever Paul heard a report about the spiritual growth, the holiness, the faithfulness of those to whom he had ministered, he made mention of it in the letters that he wrote them. If you will, for a moment, turn over to Philippians chapter 1. It's only a page or two uh, to your left. Philippians chapter 1, and look at verses 3 and 4. Look how Paul overflows with joy and thanksgiving for the Philippians. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for all making, making mention of you in all my prayers with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. He was overflowing with joy because he could see the work of the Holy Spirit in the Philippians. Says the same kind of thing in the, in the letter to the Ephesians, same kind of thing in the letter to the Thessalonians. The very thing that he describes here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 2. Overjoying with thanksgiving because of the evidence of the gospel, the effect of the gospel in the lives of those he was writing. Now, in the case of the Colossians, Paul had heard a report from a man that we're somewhat familiar with, this man named Epaphras. Anybody remember that guy's name? His name came up when we studied the book of Philemon. Epaphras was part or mentioned in that particular book. Epaphras had become a follower of Jesus Christ through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. While Paul was visiting Ephesus, so was Epaphras. For some reason, maybe a business venture, he was in uh, Ephesus when Paul was going through that town and he sat and listened to this preacher named Paul explain the gospel. It made sense to Epaphras because the Holy Spirit was, was doing a work in his heart. He received the gospel, went back home to Colossae with the gospel and started sharing Christ with all his friends and neighbors who became believers and they formed a church and then we have what we have here, a letter from the Apostle Paul to the Colossians. So Paul never himself visited Colossae, as far as we know, um, but Epaphras had become close friends with Paul, uh, and Paul had mentored Epaphras in helping him establish this small church in this small town. And the reason that Paul wrote the letter was because Epaphras became increasingly concerned with some potential dangers in the life of his church and the life of the people of his church. And so he went to visit Paul in Rome while Paul was in prison to ask for advice. And so he was sitting down explaining to Paul the things that concerned him. And Paul was saying, well, how are they doing spiritually? Or how is so-and-so? You mentioned her before or him before. And then Epaphras just overflowed with thanksgiving to God for all that he was doing in the life of the, of the Colossian church, the Colossian Christians. But in that context, Paul heard uh, 
Epaphras mentioned some concerning things. So Paul said this, let me write a letter to your church, Epaphras. I'll give it to you. You and Tychicus, who, are, who is with me, take this back and share it with your church. Now, look at chapter 4, Colossians 4, verse 7. So he's wrapping up his letter, and Paul mentions this guy, Tychicus. He says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant of the Lord. So there's Tychicus. He took the letter in hand with Epaphras, went back to Colossae with the letter. Now look up at verse 9 of chapter 4. And with him, with Tychicus, with Epaphras, Onesimus. Anybody, does that ring a bell with anybody? Who Onesimus is? He's the runaway slave. He's the guy who is the focus of the book of Philemon. He had run away from his master Philemon, who also lived in Colossae. And Paul was sending Onesimus back to his master Philemon with the letter to Philemon begging for mercy for his friend Onesimus. So these two letters are intimately connected, and they all include all the people who attended church in Colossae. And it was a small church, smaller than this church, quite a bit smaller than this church. But Epaphras was their pastor, Onesimus was a runaway slave, Philemon attended this church, and so did Tychicus. There's the, the background, and so you have somewhat of an idea of what's going on here. Um, but to, to start off with, the Apostle Paul heard this great report from Pastor Epaphras and he was responding with overwhelming joy and thanksgiving for the work that the gospel had been doing in their hearts. So because of what we're seeing here in the book of Colossians in these first few verses, I want to ask you a question. The, the statement was made, I made the statement, that a gospel-changed life results in encouragement. Are people in your life encouraged by your Christian walk? Would you have anybody vouch for you who is a believer that says, I am very encouraged by this individual. Every time around them, I, I feel like I want to follow Jesus more. I, I want to get into the word more. I, I love Jesus more because I'm with this individual. Do people say that about you? Would they say that about you? It was what Paul was saying about the Colossians. I'm so encouraged by what I hear the gospel doing in your lives. Is the gospel doing things in your life, Christian friend? If so, is anybody encouraged by it? Do they know about it? And, and see here that Paul was encouraged. A spiritual leader was encouraged by the effect of the gospel in the lives of these Colossian believers. So, do you bring joy and thanksgiving to the lives of your spiritual leaders? your small group leader, your elders, your pastors? Does your life encourage those in this church that are your spiritual leaders? And so an encouragement to you this morning would be this. Do your best to be a source of encouragement, a source of joy to your small group leaders, to your elders, to your pastors. Listen to Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So, the spiritual leaders in your lives will one day stand before God and give an account of their ministry to you. 
Do you think that's heavy? Let me tell you, it is heavy. And so it is a great joy to receive encouragement from people in the church. God is actually doing something in my life, pastor, or God is actually doing something in my life, spiritual, I'm a small group leader. And so it is, a, it is something important to be an encouragement, a source of thanksgiving uh, for the spiritual leaders in your life. Now, the next three points that I'm going to make are things that specifically encourage the Apostle Paul. All right, let's look at them. Point number two, and this is found in verse four, the second half of verse four and verse eight. A gospel-changed life results in love for others. Look at the second half of verse four. Since we heard of your, your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, verse eight, and has made, Epaphras has made known to us your love in the spirit. So a gospel changed life, and this is, this is important for you to now hold your life up against this. Here's a gospel changed life and what we see happens in a gospel changed life. Now hold your life up to compare to this results in love for others. Epaphras had delivered an amazing report about his church. He was the pastor about the spiritual life of this small and fledgling group of Christians in Colossae. Paul said in verse four, since we heard, heard from Epaphras, how God is working in your life, how the gospel has had an effect in your life. And he says, this group of people, Paul, love each other. <laughs> they love the saints and your love for all the saints, Paul says. One thing that takes place when you come to Jesus and experience an authentic conversion, you embrace the gospel, you embrace Jesus Christ, is this, a particular love for other believers. A particular love for other believers. This is why Paul connects the two things in verse 4. Look at verse 4 again. Since we heard of your faith, since we heard of your faith, and love for the saints. As you're reading through the New Testament, you will see this often. Faith and love are always connected. If you have faith, guess what's connected to your faith? Love for the saints. This is Paul's point. This is my point. Once you have a genuine conversion, the Holy Spirit grants you faith to believe the gospel, your social interests, among other interests, begin to change. Did you notice this when you came to Christ? That people who also embraced Jesus, you found attractive? I don't mean necessarily physically, I mean you wanted to be with them? Yeah, why is that? It's because now you have the presence of the Holy Spirit in you, giving you spiritual life, and that same spirit is giving spiritual life to every other Christian. And so you have a, a spiritual, supernatural affinity for other people that believe in Jesus, who have had the same conversion experience. Your desire to be with them grows, and you actually begin to look forward to being with them and sharing in the common faith together, enjoy being nurtured, challenged, loved, even sometimes tough love from people that you know love Jesus. It's a, it's a dependable love. You can depend on it for them to do the right thing in your life, whether it be difficult or, or enjoyable. Secondly, not only does this gospel change cause people to love the saints, look at verse 4 closely. If you have that pen that I asked you to bring, 
circle the word all. All the saints. Not just the saints in general, but all the saints in particular. It's a love for all the saints. So in the church, there should be no pretense. No stratas of worth. You're, you're worth this and, well, you're worth that. No. No more important people and less important people. No. Why? Because we all share equally in Christ. We all enter through the same door, right? There's only one door. People aren't going to ask each other in heaven, hey, how'd you get here? No, there's only one door, right? And we all entered through that door. We all came through that door by the same Holy Spirit with the same Savior. No one is better than, no one's more important than the next ever in the church. No one gets into the family of God by personal pedigree. No one was given special treatment because of their wealth, their looks, skin color, or intelligence. No, we're one in Christ. Our goal at Sun Valley Church is to reflect this reality. Do we always hit it? No, but that's our goal. That's what we aim for. We want there to be mutually loving relationships, cross-generational fellowship, where you actually spend time enjoying people of a completely different stratosphere. Age, income, ethnic, whatever, all enjoying each other's company because of that common bond of the Spirit. That is what we're after here. Um, this, this, we want there to be this mutual oneness in this common bond, accepting one another out of love and being quick to forgive because of that love. In fact, we encourage you to be quick to forgive one another, to be not offended by anyone. Did you know that being offended is a choice you make? You don't have to be offended by what I say or what anybody else says. You choose to be offended by what people say or not offended by what people say. So here's my advice to you as your pastor. Choose not to be offended. Right? Just don't be offended. It's like, uh, she made me yell. Really? She said this and I had to, no, no you didn't. So choose not to be offended. No matter what. Believe the best. Believe that their motives were pure. Even though they said something incredibly stupid, believe the best in them. Paul said this in the great love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, didn't he? Listen, love bears all things. And you could say this, love bears even stupid things. Believes all things. Really? I'm going to believe your motives? Yep. If you're in Christ, you'll believe my motives. Hopes all things? So can we, know, can we ever say, I've lost hope for that relationship? Hmm. Not if you're in Christ. Endures all things? Now Paul's getting ridiculous. I have to endure that person? I have to endure the way they treat me? Well, let me read it again for you. Uh, from the inspired pen of Paul, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So our desire for you is 
the thing that made the Apostle Paul rejoice. They loved all the saints, not just the ones who had kids their age, not just the ones who had the same jobs, not just ones who lived in the same neighborhood, no, all the saints were loved. You say, oh, that kind of sounds familiar. You're onto something, and so was Paul. He said this to almost every single church he wrote. Galatians, for example, 328. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, you're back in Colossians, right? Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, look at verse 11. Seems like this was a recurring necessary thing to say to Christians in the first century. Look at verse 11. Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slavery for you, but Christ is all and in all. Do you think he'd say the same thing to us? Guaranteed. In fact, this could be the epistle of Paul to Sun Valley Church. Couldn't it? It could be because it is. <laughs> By the Holy Spirit's will. Next, I want you to see in verse 8 that it's a love based on the Holy Spirit. So gospel change results in love. And here in verse 8 says it's love based on the Holy Spirit. Uh, Epaphras, who's a faithful servant in verse 7 uh, of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Epaphras was their pastor. He said, Paul, you're not going to believe how much our people love each other. You're not going to believe this, but sit down. Listen to me. And so this is what Epaphras made known to Paul. These Christians truly love each other in the spirit. And by the way, this doesn't mean in spirit, not in truth. It's like, well, I, 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 I like you in spirit. I just don't want to be with you. That's not it. It's truly loving in the capital S spirit, the Holy Spirit. The study of the Holy Spirit is helpful to understand what Paul means here when he speaks of your love in the Spirit. Let me share with you some ideas. The Holy Spirit, which I've already mentioned and which the Bible speaks of regularly in the New Testament, is the one who converts the soul. Without the Holy Spirit, you can't be saved. So he converts the soul. He's the reason you come to faith. He is the one who enters your mind and heart at a moment of his choosing and makes the gospel of Jesus look sound and attractive. The Holy Spirit does that. He's the one who applies the benefits of Jesus Christ to your spiritual condition. What Jesus did on Calvary, the Holy Spirit takes and applies it to you like a balm. He is the one who seals you for eternity. He is the one who protects you from spiritual harm. The Holy Spirit is the one who grows you into Christ's likeness. He is the one who guarantees your eternal home. This, is, this will help you understand what Paul is saying. I've heard of your love in the Holy Spirit. The reason they love each other is because they have this Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, binding their hearts together. He is the reason they love each other. He's seeing to it. Those who've truly been saved are saved by the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit makes those people love one another. They don't have a choice. 
You may think you do, but if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit will see to it that you actually love people in this church. Sooner or later. You're going to have to get into it. You're going to have to love me sooner or later. We could all say to each other. Some of you could say to your spouses. Sooner or later, honey, you're going to love me. So when Paul says in verse 8 that Epaphras was the one who may know to him their love in the Spirit, he means that Epaphras told him that the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives was real and evident. It was obvious. Epaphras was their pastor, and he could see the evidence firsthand of the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives, and it resulted in a genuine love. They loved each other in a supernatural way because the Holy Spirit was right residing here. The Holy Spirit was radically changing people from the inside out. Sun Valley Church, is he changing you? Is he up to work in your life? Can you see it? Is it obvious? Will the spiritual leaders in your life give this report to the Apostle Paul? Thirdly, verses 5 and 6 tell us, six tell us that a gospel-changed life results in a hope of heaven. You see that in your notes, a hope of heaven? What does the overhead say? A hope in heaven. So a lot of times we stop short of what the Apostle Paul means here. Oh, yeah, we, in fact, my mind when I was studying this first went to that. Hope of heaven, oh, how wonderful is that? I can't wait to get to heaven. Heaven is going to be a great place, man. And then I realized, he said, hope in heaven, not of heaven. So cross a line through of, and we did this intentionally so it'll make an impact on your brain for a memory. In heaven. What's in heaven? What did Jesus say about where he resides? At the right hand of the Father, in heaven. This is the focus of Paul. Our hope is Jesus Christ who is in heaven. Laid up in heaven for you. Epaphras obviously had told them about the promise of heaven. Certainly, this is clearly one of the great attractions of the gospel. We get to go to heaven one day. Who doesn't want to go to heaven? Right? But Paul wrote that their hope was laid up in heaven specifically to communicate something very important. Um, the, the hope laid up in heaven is every promise that's attached to Jesus Christ. Every benefit, every blessing that's attached to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the hope in heaven. Hebrews 6.19 says it this way. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, verse 20 says, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner, having become a high priest forever. Jesus is there making sure all the benefits and promises that he activates in our lives remain secure and sure. Everything that we hope for Everything we've been promised by God is wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. His work of salvation, believe me, is comprehensive. 
It includes the forgiveness of sins, the reconciliation with our Creator, transformation into His likeness, eternity with Him, and perfect peace and bliss throughout that eternity. Our hope of heaven isn't a hope of being pain-free, blissful, and enjoying an eternally satisfying location, although those things certainly will be true of heaven, but they are only true because of the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me read for you a quote that if it doesn't shake you, we need to check your pulse. Listen to this quote from John Piper's book in uh, God is the Gospel. He says, quote, Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above uh, seeing and savoring God. Let me read that again. Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. So it is a way of overcoming every obstacle, Piper says, to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. Do you see how important this is? Christian friend, understand this in all of its weight. Your hope of everything glorious and eternal is awaiting you in heaven, not eternal rounds of golf or unlimited credit card use or nights around the, the fire with family and friends. That is not heaven. Heaven is Jesus Christ and all the benefits he secured for us. 1 John 3, 2 said, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what will be, not the future, what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he, that is Jesus, appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's heaven. Is to be with our Savior, to be with our Creator, to be reconciled to Him, to be at peace with Him for eternity, to worship Him as will be our natural instinct, our natural urge when we see Him face to face. He is there in heaven. What Paul is saying in verse 5, let me read it for you again, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, what Paul is saying there in verse 5 is that the future hope of all that we have in Christ Jesus gives us a perspective that allows us to put off present potentials for future certainties. I'm going to say that again because I want you to get this. What Paul is saying here in verse 5, it is critical, is that the future hope of all that we have in Jesus Christ Gives us, gives us a perspective that allows us to put off present potentials. Things like uh, pain, joy, peace, agony. Those are all potential things that we may or may not worry about. Those are potentials, right? We might be joyful tomorrow. We might be healthy tomorrow. We might not. 
These are all potentials. Paul's saying that this perspective of having everything we need in Christ laid up in heaven allows us perspective where we can put off potential present things for future certain things. You can deal with your pain, sorrow, hardship, because your hope, really, Christian, is in heaven. Christ Jesus. You can deal with whatever it is you're facing because that's your hope, not this. Hope in heaven allows us to do hard things now knowing that we'll be rewarded then. I can do challenging things now because Jesus has promised me a perfect future. We can endure pain, hardship, persecution, and sorrow because all that lies ahead of us. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, those potential present realities, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us when we see Jesus. Friends, our present circumstances are nothing. Nothing. Everything is about our future hope laid up in heaven. Do you get it? Jim Elliot did. Remember that guy? He wrote this in his journal. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up potential present realities to keep future certain realities. Finally, a gospel-changed life results in evangelism. We're talking about this change that takes place for those who've had an authentic, genuine encounter with Christ. A gospel-changed life results in evangelism. First, I want you to see that the gospel came to them. Look at verse 6. You see it? This it says at the end of verse 5, the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. Who brought it to them? Epaphras. <laughs> this guy who happened to be in Ephesus when, when Paul was there. Heard the gospel, received Christ, went back to Colossae and did the natural thing. Tell people good news. Hey, guess what? We can be reconciled to God. Guess what? We can have our sins forgiven. A guy named Paul just told me. That's a natural thing, isn't it? Yeah. Epaphras brought good news like it's a natural thing to do if you have good news. You know, you know what? Uh, people, we have this in every other area of our life. We want to be the first with the good news, right? We want to be the first, piece to say, first person to say something that no one else knows. Guess what? We've landed on the moon. Really? Yeah, the you know, first guy that told me was that guy. Guess what? We've had our sins forgiven. The gospel, because of this, the gospel is required to travel 
on the vehicle of personal relationships. That's the way it goes from here to there. Um, from person to person. It must, the gospel must be taken by loving people and given to those who need Jesus. This is why one of our distinctives at Sun Valley Church is to be mission-minded. Have you seen those distinctives in the lobby? Grace-driven, gospel-centered, mission-minded. We want to be a growing, mission-minded church, full of mission-minded Christians. We want people who care about their neighbors, who love them enough to tell them the best news, the good news. Mission-minded people are those who understand the gospel, who personally embrace the gospel, and desire to share the gospel with those who need the gospel. Next, I want you to see this in verse 6 also. It requires us to speak. They heard it, Paul says. You heard it from Epaphras. So, you say, why, why emphasize that? What else can there be? Well, we have this uh, mistaken notion that we can share, quote unquote, the gospel by living a squeaky clean life. I don't smoke, I don't chew. I don't watch R-rated movies. Oh, now I know how to get to heaven. Ah, are you kidding me? No. That's how we think sometimes. Well, I, I haven't shared the gospel with my coworkers, but I don't laugh at dirty jokes. Friends, our squeaky clean life isn't the gospel. And by the way, we all know people who are way squeakier clean than us. Don't we? Yeah. Who are better than us, friendlier than us, better looking than us, as hard as that is to believe. But we all know them. And they don't know Jesus. The good news of Jesus Christ travels on the vehicle of language, not pantomime. God opened the mouth. But let me, let me warn you here. The gospel is not your testimony. I've said this before recently. The gospel isn't your testimony. You know, when I was 14, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then Jesus saved me. That's wonderful. I'm glad he did that. But that's not the gospel. That's your testimony. There's a massive difference between the two. The gospel is the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and his life and death while he was on earth. God is holy. Every one of us ever born is a sinner separated from our holy God. And we need a savior. We need Jesus Christ to make that connection happen and have our sins forgiven and we must each embrace him personally. That is a nutshell abbreviated gospel that must be expanded on. Thirdly, you can see in verse 6, not only are we, are we here talking about this gospel going from person to person by way of speech, but also we need to see in verse 6 that it requires understanding. Do you see that? 
This gospel has come to you, indeed, in the whole world is bearing fruit and growing, and as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood it. If you have a pen, you ought to circle or underline heard it and understood it. Understanding the gospel is essential. Ignorance of the truth of the gospel will not be an acceptable excuse on judgment day. Uh, it won't go well on judgment day for those who didn't understand the gospel to say to God, well, I thought if I gave to my church, I would be welcomed in heaven. Nope. Or I thought if I was as kind as possible to all my neighbors that I would be welcomed into heaven. Or I thought if I was raised in the Christian home and we went to church every week that I'd be welcomed into heaven. No, no, and no. The word learned in verse 7, another one you want to circle, is important. Paul says, just as you learned it from Epaphras. You know what the word learn means? Literally, exposition. The gospel was exposited to the Colossians by a faithful man named Epaphras. He dissected the gospel. Every detail was explained. They didn't misunderstand any of it. They understood it because it was exposited to them by faithful Epaphras. Meaning, we must do the same. We must understand the gospel, embrace the gospel, and share or exposit the gospel to those who need Jesus. We must know that God is holy, that we are sinners, and that Jesus is the only Savior, the only solution to that separation problem that we have, and that we must embrace him daily. Do you understand the gospel? You must. If your neighbors and children are ever going to understand and embrace Jesus, you must understand the gospel. It's not okay to say, well, I think you just need to love Jesus or something like that. I, I don't know. No. <laughs> no. We must speak clearly to our unsaved friends, family, and neighbors the wonderful and saving truth of the gospel. At the end of the letter, Colossians letter, the apostle Paul is asking his readers, the Colossian believers, to pray for him. And it's a, it's a stunning request. This is the apostle Paul, all right? <laughs> the one who wrote over half the New Testament. Look what his prayer request is in Colossians chapter four, verses three and four. At the same time, Paul says, pray also for us that, we may that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison that I may make it clear as I should. This is the apostle speaking. God, please help me make the gospel clear as I should. If Paul must have that prayer, what about us? <laughs> Friends, this time of year, most of us are in a pretty good mood. You know, we, we give gifts, we receive gifts, we're friendly with our neighbors. We even give them cookies sometimes. 
And here's an idea. If you have a genuine, authentic concern, a love for your neighbors who don't know Jesus, why not include a copy of the Gospel of John with your two dozen cookies? And tell them why. Don't sneak it in there and put it underneath the, the cookies. Put it on top with a nice bow on it with an explanation, whether verbal or written. Maybe you need to go in and highlight some things. Say, hey, I've highlighted some verses that were special to me. You can buy a paperback copy of the Gospel of John for $1.50 on Amazon. Do it. That is the Gospel. Remember we have four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospel according to John is beautiful to give at this time of year for a Christmas gift. Get it in their hands. Ask them to read it. Tell them that if they have any questions, you'd be happy to answer them. Come to my church. We talk about it all the time. Friends, if the gospel has authentically encountered you and you have embraced it, there will be evidence of it. There will be change. We have these life-changing moments I began my sermon with. Is the gospel one of them? If so, there'll be change, including an interest of sharing that gospel with everybody around us. Pray with me. Father, for this gospel of Jesus Christ, we are eternally thankful. We understand that, that our lives don't always reflect um, Jesus Christ and his goodness. There are times when we fail and then we confess our sin and we come running back to you, our Savior, knowing that you'll receive us and forgive us of our sin. But Lord Jesus, we, we truly want to be uh, good stewards of this gospel truth. We want to be beacons of this gospel truth to our friends, neighbors, and relatives. Lord Jesus, I pray that the Holy Spirit would continue to conform us, to change us into what you would have us be, that the gospel, gospel would have its full effect on each of us, resulting in undeniable change. Lord, we, we ask this, we plead this for your glory and our joy. Amen.